Well, I finally got sent away, I think, for a remark which turned out to be oddly prophetic because our general, who was a very dashing figure called Boy Browning, said to Prince Bernard of the Netherlands that the Allied forces were going to advance into Germany over a carpet of airborne troops. And I said to our chief of staff, I wonder if they're going to be alive or dead airborne troops. This didn't go well at all. So everybody decided then that they'd had enough and I got sent away. I asked if I could stay just as an ordinary officer in the operation. They said no. Everyone said the British took too much time coming up that highway. I, I have felt that had that been George Pat coming up that highway, he'd have made it. Uh, when he said, General Horrocks asked Tucker, can you lads do the job? Can they get the bridge? Colonel Tucker said, let me ask you a question, General. If we take that bridge, what assurance do we have from you that your tanks will be lined up uh, for Arnhem and force? And Horrocks, and I can remember his remarks as if they were yesterday, said, my tanks will be lined up in full force held in Florida, and nothing will stop them. That's not what happened. One gun stopped them. And on the bridge, uh, and we were holding the northern perimeter, and we had removed the charges on the bridge, but that uh, we had failed to get any troops south of the river. And I said that Lion Rouge, which was the southernmost route which we'd used, was still open. If you will send one battalion or one company from each battalion down Lion Route, there will be no opposition. I strongly recommend that you do one of these two things. And Brigadier Lasprey said, no, I've decided that we're in contact with the enemy and we're not really well organized at the moment and my troops are too tired and I've, I will order them to stay where they are and make uh, a determined attempt in first night and I will come down line route. And of course, that was the moment we lost the battle. If he had detached either one battalion or two companies to get onto the bridge, we'd have had. The uh, commanding, commander of the task force, which was uh, Captain Carrington, and said, why are you stopping? And he said, well, I can't go up there. That gun will knock out the rest of my tanks. I said, we will go with you and get that gun. He said, no, I can't go without orders. And I said, well, I'm giving you orders. And uh, an American captain giving a British captain orders went over like a lead balloon. We were behind this dike, and we charged over the top, carrying these flimsy canvas boats, and charged down this embankment and set our boats in the water. We lost our minds. We can't get across them that heavy fire in those little boats. But we, you know, you, you do it anyway. I can tell you honestly and sincerely that I didn't think any of us 
would make it across that river. All the, all the radio communications in First Parachute Brigade um, broke down with the possible exception and in the 72 hours we were on the bridge, um, the radios were working for about all together, lumped together, about half an hour. I was talking to Carrington, he was sitting in his tank, and we were having this argument about him not moving out. When, uh, when he failed to move, and I ordered him to, and he still failed to move, uh, I cocked an atomic gun and put it to his head and told him if he didn't get this blankety-blank tank moving, I'd blow his head off. And with that, he ducks down into the tank, closes the hatch, and sits there the rest of the night, couldn't get to him. Uh, as I understand, Carrington denies that anybody pulled a gun on him, but uh, his memory is not quite as good as mine if, if he really believes that. The odds are that you've never heard of Operation Market Garden. One reason for that is the fact that this World War II mission was unsuccessful in reaching its objective. It's been called many things. An uncompleted military operation, a military blunder, an unfortunate tragedy, and at least one historian has even suggested sabotage. And despite many attempts to push it onto the back pages of history, Operation Market Garden has remained a field of study in military history, offering valuable lessons as to what can happen when command ignores intelligence, puts the wrong leaders in charge, and fails to assess the risk. The roughly 35,000 men who took part in the largest airborne assault in history in September of 1944 didn't fail. Their command did, for a number of reasons, one of them being by allowing a desperate plan to take place that had very little chance of success from the start, and with far too many moving parts all dependent upon each other, and worse yet, all requiring a 48-hour deadline in order to make it all work. Then, once committed to the plan, there were a number of bad command decisions made during the battle command decisions which we will review in this story, letting the chips fall where they may. Those men who fought, men of the British, Polish, and American paratroops, pilots, and soldiers, and Dutch resistance, took the parts they were given in this tragedy and played them to the hilt with incredible courage and fortitude, knowing what the odds were from the beginning and doing everything in their power to beat them. They soldiered on, and they were heroes. It is to them, the men we left behind, that this story is dedicated. I think your phone is ringing. You'll be asked to attend a classified briefing at 0900. It is August 25th, 
1944, Allied Headquarters Command. Gentlemen, please focus your attention on the easel you see here at center stage. As you can all plainly see, this is a detailed topographical map showing the current position of 30 Corps here in Belgium in the south and a highway leading north through Holland toward the Rhine River with Arnheim at the top. Just beyond Arnheim lies the industrial heart of Germany. The map is labeled Operation Market Garden, which is the name given to this operation, the purpose of which is to drop 35,000 paratroopers behind German lines at critical points along this 60-mile stretch of highway connecting our 30 Corps here on the Belgium border and north to the Rhine River and Arnheim, just miles from the German border. Their job to secure the bridges and water crossings so 30 Corps can move north to Arnheim. We're also dropping paratroops just outside Arnheim to secure that bridge and town. There are a total of nine river and canal crossings that need to be captured and engineered if necessary to allow British 30 Corps, led by the Irish Brigade, to proceed to Arnheim, up here, all within a time frame of 48 hours. The word market represents our airborne forces, while garden stands for our ground forces. This plan was conceived by Field Marshal Montgomery and was just recently given approval by our Allied Commander, General Eisenhower. Success is dependent upon speed and a number of other factors. As an option to the wide path of attack currently being employed, which is hampered by a lack of supply points, Monty's idea is a fast strike at the Nazis' heart through Holland. Our goal, to repeat, is to lay down a carpet along this 60-mile stretch along which 30 Corps will quickly move northward from its current position on the border of Belgium and German-occupied Holland, and to seize Arnheim, giving us direct access to the belly of the German beast. Two airborne divisions will land in Holland and one in Germany at Arnheim. 36,400 men will be taking off from 24 airfields in England in troop-carrying planes and towed gliders. These wooden canvas gliders are large enough to carry light vehicles, men, and equipment that require flat fields for landing areas, field which our aerial reconnaissance has identified here, here, and here. The American 101st Airborne will secure three river crossings here at these locations near Eindhoven within three hours of landing, allowing the 30 Corps to pass northward. Further north, and at the same time, on day one, three more bridges south of Nijmegen, here, here, and here, will be secured by the American 82nd Airborne, whose priority it is to secure these vital river and canal crossings. Everything else is secondary. We are dropping the combined British 1st Airborne and Polish paratroops here to the west of Arnheim. The ultimate objective up here is to recapture the town of Arnheim and the Arnheim Bridge over the Rhine within 48 hours. That's two days from the launch of the operation, allowing 30 Corps a straight shot at Hitler's manufacturing centers up here. Why only 48 hours to bring this massive assault off? Because our airborne assault units are lightly equipped. 
Bren guns, mortars, jeeps, and some light anti-tank weapons. The Brits tell us we won't be meeting up with any Panzer divisions. However, the Germans are well fortified here and can bring reinforcements to Arnheim within 48 hours. If 30 Corps does not reach Arnheim in two days, we can't hold the city or the bridge. So success of all these moving parts is critical. This is a bold plan, but these are dangerous times and bold actions are required. We expect the Germans will try to blow these bridges. We or the Dutch resistance will defuse the explosive charges that the Germans have no doubt laid. And failing that, we have other options prepared for crossing these rivers and canals with tanks. The British 1st Airborne and Polish paratroops will land here, just west of Arnheim. Their job is to secure the town of Arnheim and the north end of the critical bridge across the Rhine, the bridge that 30 Corps will be crossing. We will now break out into detailed sessions whereupon you will receive your orders. Good luck. Hopefully all your questions will be answered. Oh, there were questions. There have been questions all along the way. Eisenhower, overall commander of Allied forces in Europe, having been successful in securing a beachhead in France at D-Day, needed a deep water port closer to the front than Cherbourg to supply his forces. But the British under Montgomery had failed to immediately clear the Scheldt estuary that accessed Antwerp, Belgium, capturing Antwerp, but allowing the German 15th Army and its 80,000 soldiers to escape along that estuary from where they had been trapped on the peninsula. A major blunder that would come back to bite this effort at Arnheim. Eisenhower, a decisive general and a born leader, was also getting fed up with the power struggle taking place between British Field Marshal Montgomery and the American General Patton, both having seen visions of their exalted place in history once they personally led their armies across the Rhine and defeated the Huns. The British need to avenge their country's nearly total destruction from continued German bombing, now with V-2 rockets, and with the threat of even more devastating rocketry being devised by German scientists looming. Worse, Montgomery was in a panic at a time when cool heads were needed, and devised Market Garden as a plan through which he would be remembered forever as the man who brought down Hitler and saved Europe. He had been constantly needling Eisenhower for a faster timeline and insisting that the Brits be given the supplies needed to reach Berlin before Patton. Patton's army was also moving toward Germany from the south and east and demanding supplies, but not getting them. When Eisenhower finally gave in to Montgomery's risky plan, Patton was placed at a standstill and left fuming. Montgomery's Operation Market Garden would bypass the Siegfried Line by hooking around its northern end, allowing the Allies to cross the Rhine with large forces and trap the German 15th Army between Arnheim and the shores of Isselmeer. On September 10th, Dempsey, the British 2nd Army commander, told Montgomery that he had doubts about this plan and that he instead favored an advance northeastwards between the Reichswald Forest and the Ruhr to Wiesel. To add to that, Eisenhower, who was the commander of the Allied forces in Europe, had serious doubts about the plan himself. Montgomery replied that he had just received a signal from London that something needed to be done to neutralize the German V-2 launch sites around The Hague, which were bombarding London, and that the plan must therefore proceed, and now. 
by the first week of September, with Eisenhower still not on board with the plan, saying it was too risky. And angered by Eisenhower's reluctance, Montgomery flew to Brussels that afternoon to meet him. Montgomery, in an angry huff, requested that Eisenhower's chief administrative officer leave the meeting while insisting that his own should remain. He then tore a file of Eisenhower's messages to shreds in front of him, argued for a concentrated northern thrust, and demanded priority and supplies. So fierce and unrestrained was Montgomery's language that Eisenhower suddenly reached out, patted Montgomery's knee, and told him, Steady, Monty. You can't talk to me like that. I'm your boss. Eisenhower stated his belief that advance on a broad front would soon provoke German forces to collapse. He told Montgomery why a single thrust toward Berlin was not going to be accepted. What you're proposing is this. If I give you all the supplies you want, you could go straight to Berlin. Straight 500 miles to Berlin? Right? Straight? 500 miles to Berlin? Monty, you're nuts. You can't do it. What the hell? If you try a long column like that in a single thrust, you'd have to throw off division after division to protect your flanks from attack. Nevertheless, Eisenhower consented to Operation Market Garden, giving it a limited priority in terms of supplies, and only as part of an advance on a broad front. Eisenhower promised that aircraft and trucks would deliver 1,000 tons of supplies per day. In vain, Montgomery complained about this to the vice chief of the Imperial General Staff in London, Lieutenant General Sir Archibald Nye, but it went nowhere. As it turned out, Montgomery was given everything he needed from Allied command, the planes, the men, the weapons, but everything that could go wrong with the British effort did in the days to come, leaving Montgomery with no one to blame but himself. Had he been the type of leader that would accept blame, but he wasn't. He would claim 90% success after the bitter end and do everything possible to secure his rightful place in history as a great military leader. The north-south road you saw during the briefing was actually called Highway 69, later nicknamed Hell's Highway by the 101st Airborne, because German resistance turned it into a living hell. Resistance made almost easy by the fact that much of the road was generally raised above the surrounding flat terrain making ambush a constant factor, any persons or vehicles passing along the road becoming an easy target. The ground on either side of the highway was in places too soft to support tactical vehicle movement, and there were numerous dikes and drainage ditches. Dikes tended to be topped by trees or large bushes, and roads or paths were lined with trees. In early autumn, this meant that observation would be seriously restricted, making ambush a definite danger. There were nine water obstacles between the 30 Corps' jumping-off point and the objective of the north bank of the Nedrin, six of them major obstacles. Plans were made to seize bridges across all these obstacles nearly simultaneously. Any failure to do so could result in serious delay or even defeat. In case bridges were demolished by the Germans, 30 Corps had plans to rebuild them. To this end, a vast quantity of bridging material was collected, along with 2,300 vehicles to carry it, and 9,000 engineers to assemble it. That was one long supply line. Although the area between Belgium and the Rhine at Arnheim is generally flat and open, 
with less than a 30-foot variation in altitude. Lieutenant General Brian Horrocks, commander of 30 Corps, recalled that the country was wooded and rather marshy, which made any outflanking operation impossible. There were two important hills, 300 feet high, that represented some of the highest ground in the Netherlands, one north and west of Arnheim and one in the 82nd Airborne Division's zone, Gross Beak Ridge. Seizure in defense of this hill was considered vital to holding the highway bridges. This would turn out to be a very costly ridge, but small compared to what the river and bridge at Nijmegen would cost them. Market would employ four of the six divisions of the 1st Allied Airborne Army. The U.S. 101st Airborne Division under Major General Maxwell D. Taylor would drop in two locations just north of 30 Corps to take the bridges northwest of Eindhoven at Sohn and Vagel. The 82nd Airborne Division under Brigadier General James M. Gavin would drop northeast of them to take the bridges at Grave and Nijmegen. And the British 1st Airborne Division under Major General Roy Urquhart with the Polish 1st Independent Parachute Brigade under Brigadier General Stanislaw Sosobowski would drop at the extreme north end of the route, capturing the road bridge at Arnheim and the rail bridge at Osterbeek. Sosobowski, the 49-year-old veteran of World War I and Polish hero, had escaped the Russian and German occupation of Poland, been captured, then escaped to lead a division of Polish expatriate fighters, had started his own paratroop division, and wanted to be among the first to free Poland from occupation. He would find that General Boy Browning, in command of the entire airborne operation, would deny three-quarters of his troop planes due to what Browning described as a shortage of aircraft. The Poles would instead be dropped late and right into waiting German guns days after the operation had already failed, possibly in an effort to make Polish troops the scapegoats for the failure of the operation. The Polish troops that were dropped were to show extreme heroism under heavy German fire. In the 1977 movie A Bridge Too Far, based on the book of the same name written by Cornelius Ryan, and a movie which is highly recommended for its accuracy, Sean Connery played his fellow Scott Major Urquhart. Gene Hackman did a great job as Polish General Stanislaw Sobowski. Ryan O'Neill played General James Gavin of the 82nd. And Dirk Bogard, who was actually there fighting, played Lieutenant General Boy Browning. James Kahn, Elliot Gould, Robert Redford, and Ryan O'Neill could have stayed home and actually benefited the movie greatly. Field Marshal Montgomery was not included in the movie, the reason being put forward was that director Richard Attenborough didn't want to cast any bad light on Montgomery, who had been the hero of El Alamein in North Africa, and whose name had become, and still is, revered in Britain. In this saga, however, it is quite obvious that Monty's involvement in the concept, choice of commanders, and ignoring of critical intel prior to the launch of Operation Market Garden was the largest reason for its failure to reach its objective and the loss of thousands of good men, American, Polish, British, and Dutch. The first Allied Airborne Army had been created on August 16th as the result of British requests for a coordinated headquarters for airborne operations, a concept approved by General Eisenhower on June 20th of that year, 1944. The British, meaning Montgomery, had strongly hinted that a British officer, Browning in particular, nicknamed Boy Browning, a charismatic, if not battle-hardened, rising star in the British military, 
be appointed its commander. Browning, for his part, decided to bring his entire staff with him on the operation to establish his field HQ using the much-needed 32-horse gliders for administrative personnel and six Waco CG-4A gliders for U.S. signals personnel. Planes the Polish Paratroop Division left behind for lack of planes badly needed. He had designated Grosbeek Ridge at Nijmegen as his command HQ, a ridge nine miles south of Arnheim from which he could watch the action at both Nijmegen and Arnheim. Someone in Browning's cadre, maybe Browning himself, started a rumor that the Germans had a full panzer division guarding Grosbeek Ridge, where in fact there had been no intelligence to that effect. But it would be the responsibility of the American 82nd Airborne to commit enough troops to make sure it was protected, even at the cost of not securing the Nijmegen Bridge, a priority on day one. Market, the airborne part of Market Garden, would be the largest airborne operation in history, delivering over 34,600 men of the 101st, 82nd, and British 1st Airborne Divisions and the Polish Brigade. 14,589 troops were to be landed by glider and 20,011 by parachute. Gliders would deliver 1,736 vehicles and 263 artillery pieces. 3,342 tons of ammunition and other supplies were to be brought by glider and parachute drop in the following days. The combined force had 1,438 C-47 Dakota transports, 1,200 of those built by the U.S., 164 by Britain, and 321 converted RAF bombers. The Allied glider force had been rebuilt after Normandy until by September 16th, it numbered 2,160 CG-4A Waco gliders, 916 airspeed horses, and 64 General Aircraft Hamilcars. The U.S. only had 2,060 glider pilots available, so that none of its gliders would have a co-pilot, but would instead carry an extra passenger. When this whole thing got in the air, the planes were lined up three miles wide and 90 miles long, filling the sky over England, the Channel, and Holland with planes and parachutes. That's what the Germans would see coming at them over Holland with thousands of parachutes sprouting out across the skies. It was a daylight drop. To give you an idea how long that line was, while planes were dropping paratroops in Holland, planes were still taking off in Britain. Allied airborne doctrine prohibited big operations in the absence of all light, so the operation had to be carried out in the daylight. The risk of Luftwaffe interception was judged small, given the crushing air superiority of Allied fighters. But there were concerns about the increasing number of flak units in the Netherlands, especially around Arnheim. As it turned out, with weather turning overcast on day two, Allied air superiority was negated, causing delay and botched dropping of reinforcements and supplies, further hampering the mission. After one week, preparations were declared complete. The planning and training for the airborne drops at Sicily and Normandy had taken months, where this just took a week. One United States Air Force historian noted that Market was the only large airborne operation of the Second World War in which the USAAF had no training program no rehearsals, 
almost no exercises, and a low level of tactical training. General Gavin, commanding the U.S. 82nd Airborne Division, was skeptical of the plan. In his diary, he wrote, It looks very rough. If I get through this one, I will be very lucky. He was also highly critical of Browning, the British officer who had been placed in charge of the market operation, writing that he, Browning, unquestionably lacks the standing, influence, and judgment that comes from a proper troop experience. His staff was superficial. Why the British units fumble along becomes more and more apparent. Their tops lack the know-how. Never do they get down into the dirt and learn the hard way. Garden, the ground side of the operation, consisted primarily of 30 Corps and was initially spearheaded by the Guards Armored Division with the 43rd Wessex and 50th Northumbrian Infantry Divisions in reserve. They were expected to arrive at the south end of the 101st Airborne Division's area on the first day, the 82nds by the second day, and the 1st in Arnheim as early as the end of day two. The Airborne Divisions would then join 30 Corps in the breakout from the Arnheim Bridgehead. Three or four days was a long time for an airborne force to fight unsupported. But four days was considered maximum time in case of delays. In the coming winter, during the Battle of the Bulge, airborne would be cut off for weeks in freezing weather in the Ardennes Forest, more men dying from freezing to death than frostbite than bombs and bullets. In addition, the Allied paratroopers lacked adequate anti-tank weapons in that what they were given had no effect on panzer tanks. Even so, before Operation Market Garden started, it seemed to the Allied High Command that the German resistance had broken. Most of the German 15th Army in the area appeared to be fleeing from the Canadians, and they were thought to have no Panzergruppen, or Panzer Group support. This turned out to be a deadly misjudgment, as we'll soon see. It was also thought, or at least vocalized, by the British High Command that was trying to sell the program that 30 Corps would face limited resistance on their route up Highway 69, and little armor. This was a total blunder or lie, depending on which version you accept, on the part of either intelligence or the higher-ups' refusal to accept or communicate good intelligence, this latter option probably being the correct one. They certainly never considered how fast the scattered German forces in Holland would coalesce and how fiercely they would fight. The route of the Wehrmacht during July and August led the Allies to believe that the German army was a spent force unable to reconstitute its shattered units. During those two months, the Wehrmacht had suffered a string of defeats with heavy losses. Between June 6th and 14th of August, it had suffered 23,000 killed in action. 198,000 missing or taken prisoner, and 67,000 wounded, according to author Kershaw, whose name will come up later. Many of the formations the Wehrmacht had possessed at the beginning of the Normandy campaign had been annihilated or had been reduced to skeleton formations by the end of August. As the German armies retreated towards the German frontier, they were often harried by air attacks and bombing raids by aircraft of the Allied air forces, inflicting casualties and destroying vehicles. Attempts to halt the Allied advance often seemed fruitless as hurried counterattacks and blocking positions were brushed aside and at times there seemed to be too few German units to hold anywhere. 
By early September, the situation was beginning to change, however. The failure of the British 21st Army Group, which was mentioned earlier, to seal off the Scheldt estuary area, had allowed the 80,000 troops of the German 15th Army to be extricated from the area with 225 guns intact and 750 trucks by a flotilla of commandeered freighters, barges, and small boats. That was Monty's baby, and he missed it. It would come back to bite him at Arnheim, not personally, of course, just the 11,000 men who would never return. With Operation Market Garden, the Germans seemed to know something was coming and were able to react quickly when it did come. German Field Marshal Modell set out to stop the Allied advance. The German 719th Infantry Division, part of 88 Corps, was dispatched south to the Albert Canal and Modell requested reinforcements from Germany, stating that he would require 25 infantry divisions and six armored divisions to hold. He envisioned a line stretching from Antwerp via Maastricht to Metz, and from there to follow the line of the Albert Canal to the Meuse and the Siegfried Line. You'll hear the Siegfried Line mentioned a number of times. These were the German fortifications first put in place to guard the homeland from tank invasion during World War I. And here it was, 25 years later, they'd been fortified yet again. You'll recall that Montgomery's plan would bring attacking forces around, over, and behind this line of defense, a move that the German high command considered suicidal, which turned out to be correct. Meanwhile, General Kurt Student, commander of the Fallschirmjäger, the German airborne forces, received orders from Alfred Jodl, chief of the operations staff of the Oberkommando der Wehrmacht to immediately move from Berlin and proceed to the Netherlands, where he would collect all available units and build a front near the Albert Canal, which was to be held at all costs. This front was to be held by the new 1st Parachute Army, which existed on paper only. Its units were scattered throughout Germany and the Netherlands and consisted either of units in the process of being formed or remnants cadred by survivors of previous units. It came together with lightning speed. Though the situation seemed dire, the German front was beginning to form into what author Robert Kershaw termed a crust, and he had written the book It Never Snows in September, based largely upon interviews with German commanders in the years following the war. Leadership, initiative, and a good staff system were beginning to create a defense out of chaos. On the September 4th, the 719th German Infantry Division began to dig in along the Albert Canal, and was soon joined by forces under the command of Lieutenant General Kurt Chill. Although Chill only officially commanded the 85th Infantry Division, which had suffered heavy casualties during the retreat from Normandy, he had assumed the command of the remnants of the 84th and 89th Infantry Divisions en route. Initially ordered to take his command to the Rhineland for rest and reinforcements, Chill disregarded the order and moved his forces to the Albert Canal, linking up with the 719th. He also had reception centers set up at the bridges crossing the Albert Canal where small groups of retreating troops were picked up and turned into ad hoc units. For what was supposed to be a surprise invasion on the part of the Allies, things weren't looking too good. And it was getting worse. On September 5th, Modell's forces were bolstered by the arrival of the 2nd SS Panzer Corps, which consisted of the 9th SS and 10th SS Panzer, under the command of Lieutenant General Wilhelm Bietrich. The Corps had been reduced to approximately 6,000 to 7,000 men. 
Modell ordered the two divisions to rest and refit in safe areas behind the new German line. These areas, coincidentally, were to be right in the path of the Allied plan. Eindhoven and Arnheim. Maybe a coincidence, maybe not. At the time of Operation Market Garden, the 10th SS Panzer Division had an approximate strength of 3,000 men, an armored infantry regiment, divisional reconnaissance battalion, two artillery battalions, and an engineer battalion, all partially motorized. Other formations were appearing to strengthen the German defenses. Between September 16th and 17th, two infantry divisions from 15th Army assembled in Brabant. Under strength, but well-equipped and able to act as a reserve. Near Eindhoven and Arnheim, a number of scratch formations were being assembled. Several SS units, including an NCO training battalion and a Panzer Grenadier Reserve Battalion, were being prepared to enter combat, and Luftwaffe and Kriegsmarine personnel were being grouped into Fliegerhorst and Schiffstemmabteilung formations. There were also a number of training battalions that were being equipped. Several depot battalions from the Hermann Goering Panzer Division and various artillery, anti-aircraft, and field police units scattered throughout the north of the Netherlands. And all this was standing in the way of paratroopers armed with Bren guns, hand grenades, and guts. This was the situation with regard to Allied intelligence. The intelligence guys were on the ball, but Britain's high command wasn't listening, as the attitude was all in for Monty's plan, and nothing was going to stop it. A number of reports about German troop movements reached Allied High Command, including details about the identity and location of German armored formations. Station X at Bletchley Park monitored and decrypted German ultra-intelligence reports and sent them to senior Allied commanders, but they only reached British Army headquarters level and were not passed down any lower. On September 16th, ultra-decrypts revealed the movement of the 9th and 10th SS Panzer Divisions to Nijmegen and Arnheim. Information which did reach Allied command, creating enough concern for Eisenhower to send his Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Walter Bedell Smith, to raise the issue with Montgomery on September 10th. However, Montgomery dismissed Smith's concerns and refused to alter the plans for the landing of 1st Airborne Division at Arnheim, according to author Peter Harselrode in his well-researched book, a tragedy of errors. Further information about the location of the German Panzer Divisions at Arnheim was revealed by aerial photographs of Arnheim taken by a photo reconnaissance Spitfire from RAF's number 16 squadron, as well as information from members of the Dutch resistance. Fearing that 1st Airborne Division might be in grave danger if it landed at Arnheim, the chief intelligence officer of the division Major Brian Urquhart arranged a meeting with Browning and informed him of the armor present at Arnheim. Browning dismissed his claims and ordered the division's senior medical officer to send Urquhart on a sick leave on account of nervous strain and exhaustion. So as you can see, the fix was in. Intelligence was being ignored by Montgomery and Browning. One of the heroes that will emerge in this story, Colonel John Frost, who had been the only one to reach Arnheim with a battalion element of the 1st Airborne and had held on against a panzer division for days with no relief, wrote in his 1980 biography, A Drop Too Many, 
that Commander Browning had intentionally kept the fact that German panzer divisions were in the Arnheim area away from him, using a deliberate and planned deception, telling Frost that some SS recruits were in the Arnheim area but had no guns or armor. Frost most likely recalled this lie as panzer tanks were busy destroying, one by one, the buildings that Frost and his rapidly dwindling battalion men were holed up in as they tried desperately to hold on to the bridge at Arnheim during four days of intense fighting. That story to come. You had the wireless reception which came and went and, and uh, every now and again you got through to them and uh, I told them that um, Brigadier disappeared and that Johnny Frost would be commanding the brigade from now on, but that I would transmit his orders about half an hour after that at somewhere about 10 o'clock I managed to get Brigadier Lathbury on the wireless radio and um, I told him that we'd got about 600 men on the bridge uh, and that we were holding the northern perimeter and that we had removed the charges on the bridge but that uh, failed to get any troops south of the river and I said that Lion Rouge, which was the southernmost route which we'd used, was still open. If you will send one battalion or one company from each battalion down Lion Route, there will be no opposition. I strongly recommend that you do one of these two things. And Brigadier Lasprey said, no, I've decided that we're in contact with the enemy and we're not really well organized at the moment and my troops are too tired and I've, I will order them to stay where they are and make uh, a determined attempt in first night and I will come down line route. Because that was the moment we lost the battle. If he had detached either one battalion or two companies to get onto the bridge, we'd have had enough troops on the bridge itself to hold out on the bridge. We were overrun on uh, about 10 o'clock on Wednesday night, the 20th. And at the same time, the um, Lord Carrington in his tanks had just got across Nijmegen Bridge. If we'd had probably that extra company or two companies on the north end of the bridge, we could have held out for those extra two or three hours which would have taken for our troops from the south to get up to us. I think it cost us the battle because if he'd only sent us probably an extra two companies at that moment, uh, that would have enabled us to widen the perimeter which was the very small perimeter that we were holding. And that would have enabled us to stay hang on probably for another 12 hours at least. And that was Major Tony Hibbert, 1st Airborne Division. 
So there you have it. We've set the stage for the most daring and hastily conceived paratroop invasion in history. It's now Sunday, September 17, 1944, and everything has to happen right this day. All along the 60-mile north-south stretch from the Belgium border up to Arnheim, everything is lighting up as battles commence to secure the highway and bridges. On Sunday, September 17, 1944, Operation Market Garden began in England. The weather was beautiful, warm, and cloudless, perfect for a sports match had not the freedom of the Western world been at stake. Early that morning of the 17th, paratroops and glider troops began climbing into their flimsy gliders and C-47 skytrains at airfields all over England, and the planes began taking off, heading east, a trail of aircraft 90 miles long and 3 miles wide, carrying 36,400 men and supplies to their destinations in Holland. The American 101st was headed toward Eindhoven. James Gavin's 82nd Airborne was headed for Grosbeek and Overossel, while the British and Polish paratroops were headed for Hinkle's Heath, eight miles northwest of Arnheim, a ridiculous distance away from their objective, Arnheim, considering the German forces waiting to block their path. But few men aboard those planes knew what they were in for. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Coming next week, first-hand testimony from the paratroopers of the British 1st Airborne Division, the American 82nd Airborne, and the 101st Airborne, who recount their experiences of being dropped into German-held territory with a near-impossible mission to secure the single-lane dirt road leading 60 miles from the Holland-Belgium border and all its river crossings and bridges, north to Arnheim, all within 48 hours. You'll hear from the 82nd Division's Moffat Burris, from British 1st Airborne Division's Tony Hibbert, from others who made the jump, fought heroically, and later went on to fight in the Battle of the Bulge. We'll discuss the major decisions that impacted the mission, the outcome, and the lessons learned, of which there are many. We'll ask our guest journalist, Tony Gosling, how Operation Market Garden has been treated in Britain throughout the past decades. And find out what happened to British Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, General Boy Browning, Intelligence Officer Brian Urquhart, who you remember was sent on leave by Browning after expressing doubts in the mission. What happened to Lord Carrington, to Polish General Stanislawski, and others after the war. You won't want to miss part two in one week. We wish to thank everyone who's been sending us page likes at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes and all of you Apple podcast listeners who have been sending reviews. Here are some recent ones. Sarah, who is listening to our Edgar Casey interviews from August, writes, Best podcast ever. I've always been intrigued and drawn by Casey's work from a young age. Thank you for sharing these messages. Thanks, Sarah. And you listeners can check our archives for Ancient Civilizations. Dreams, Do They Matter, and Casey on Reincarnation and Karma. It's fascinating stuff, and whether you agree with it or not, it'll expand your thinking into whole new realms. Who's your listener gave us five stars and said, Interesting, I always learn something new. Svendanavia gave us an always interesting, great to hear parts of history uncovered. And Candy Traveler says, Great history. This is a great podcast if you're a history buff. 
I was so excited to find the episode about the Culper spy ring. It was a great listen. Thanks. And she's referring to our Unsung Heroes of the Revolution, Parts 1 and 2, that were released September 3rd and 10th. Thank you, Candy, for taking the time to give us a review and showing your appreciation. I would like to thank Away and their Away Carry-On for coming aboard as sponsors of this show. I just spent four days traveling with my Away Carry-On suitcase, and it's hands down the best travel suitcase I've ever owned. And it'll make the perfect gift for that hard-to-buy-for person in your family. With its lifetime guarantee and 100-day trial, there's a perfect size and color for everyone on your holiday list. Or just grab an Away Travel gift card and let them decide. These suitcases are made of lightweight polycarbonate. The interior is super spacious with a patented compression system. And both sizes of the carry-on can charge all cell phones and anything else that's powered by a USB cord. It's free shipping within the mainland U.S. But best of all, our partnership with Away means a $20 savings for you when you go to awaytravel.com. That's A-W-A-Y travel.com forward slash 1001. And remember to use 1001 in the checkout. Remember, awaytravel.com forward slash 1001 and put 1001 in the promo code box at checkout. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Check out our sister show at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales and check our show notes, sponsor links, and credits. See you next week.